If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So, my lovely privilege to be talking to Sam tonight, who I've been a fan of and a friend of from the beginning. A, no, a, a friend through work and through teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam, you were a novelist until this book came out. And in a way, I want to start by asking you about that, about your thrilling sequence of novels, The Wilderness, All Is Song... Um, Dear Thief, and then the last one, whose name I'm now having done so well so far, I'm na- the Western Wind, <laughs> uh, a medieval detective story, only not. Tell us a little bit about yourself as a writer, your history as a writer, and what th- those books are all incredibly different, each from the other. How how has that all unfolded for you? Hmm. That's the hardest question I've ever been asked. <laughs> oh, no, there are more to come. <laughs> now I regret saying, ask me whatever you like. <laughs> um, yeah, all my novels are, are, well, I guess in a way, yeah, very different. And then also I feel like they're all exactly the same because they're all by me and they all have the same kind of preoccupations running through yeah. them. But I can never get away from and you know as a novelist you find yourself sort of worrying away at the same subjects all the time and mine seem to be around identity and selfhood and the sort of loosely um, philosophical questions that pertain to that and then um, faith always faith Mm. you know I every time I start a new novel I think I'm not going to write about faith or religion in this one. I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm, I don't have a religion myself. Um, and yet I keep returning to it, and I can't seem to ever stop doing that. And mm. then, it, of, of course, it sneaks into The Shapeless Unease as well. More than sneaks. In a big way. In a big, yes. Sneaks in yes. a big way, yeah. Um, and so I, I guess when I am looking to write a novel, I'm trying to find a subject that would be a vehicle for those sorts of yeah. questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and then foregrounding other things in different ways. So with The Western Wind, which is a kind of medieval whodunit sort of um, foregrounding plot more than I have in my other novels, I suppose, or at least you know, the mechanisms of plot, just playing around with that. And then in others, foregrounding form more, like in Dear Thief, which was one long letter with, mm-hmm. you know, with no response. So they're all kind of orbiting the same kinds of questions about who we are and how we negotiate the world and mm-hmm. how, we, how we hold faith or religion yeah. in a largely secular world. I think one of the first things I knew about you was that you'd done a philosophy degree. That is right, isn't it? Yes. And invented that. And that's coloured my reading of your books, but it didn't. I would have known it anyway. I would have deduced it from the books. One of the things all those novels seemed to have in common was that they were very remote in one sense from you, mm. as if you had... Your first book was about someone who'd suffered from Alzheimer's and you didn't even, if I remember rightly, know anybody who'd suffered from Alzheimer's. Mm. And then the last one, you know, your medieval priest puzzling, puzzling out some uh, 
a mystery, a death. Um, all of them were remote from you. Now, the shapeless unease is very personal. Tell, tell me about making that step and that contradiction in you in a really interesting way, or maybe it isn't a contradiction, between those novels which you kept so almost ferociously at arm's length mm. and then this new book which is so personal. Mm. It's, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I have always quite consciously written novels that are not... Um, in any sense autobiographical, that are as removed mm. from me as possible, and to the extent that um, it took me to my third novel to write from the point of view of a woman, which felt like, you know, an enormous step, <laughs> because it was just getting yes. a little bit too close yeah. to yeah. home. Um, I, and I don't know why, you know, I don't know what that was. It was sort of a sense of, um, it's, it was nothing as... Um, as dramatic as trying to escape myself. It was just mm. a deep interest in other people and other experiences mm. that, that I couldn't access myself other than through writing and, and making that, that kind of leap into another consciousness. And it never really seemed interesting enough to me to write about myself, or I wouldn't know, perhaps more to the point, I wouldn't know how to fictionalise myself mm -hmm. I think oh. it's one of the hardest things to do, actually. And I, I think from teaching where Tess and I have, have taught for a long time um, on the MA at Bar Spa, you, you come across a lot of first-time writers who write about themselves in some way or their own lives and then go to these great sort of painful lengths to fictionalise it and can't. And I think it'd just be easier to start with something already mm. fictional, yeah. you know, not yeah. yourself. Yeah. It's, so and it's always the bit where you say, everything else is all right, but that bit, no one yeah. will believe that. And they say, that happened to my auntie exactly <laughs> yeah. that way. Exactly. It's so interesting. It is. It does seem to be the most intimate reality that is the hardest to yeah. make believable in fiction. Absolutely. And, and, and who knows why that is? I think about it a yeah. lot, but it's, it's absolutely true that, that those are always the imposters. They're always the things you can spot that just don't yeah. ring true. They don't fit yeah. the coherence of that fictional world mm. you've made because they didn't originate there. So, yeah. um, that's why I've kind of always avoided it. And then in terms of this book, I mean, I didn't really, I, I, the, it's a simple answer in that I just didn't mean to do it. I, yeah. I wrote this book by accident, completely by accident, and I wrote it in a without. I wrote it without knowing it was a book for a start. Mm -hmm. And I think if someone had said to me, "Why don't you write a book about your insomnia?" Um, I would have. I wouldn't have been able to. I would have had no idea where to start. And the prospect of trying to make a book while I was very sleep-deprived, would have felt absolutely insurmountable to me. So I didn't ever write a book. I wrote some sentences, mm -hmm. and then I wrote some more sentences, and I wrote some more, and then disappeared. Um, and it was absolutely instinctive and without design, and certainly without the design for it to ever become... Something so like this. fascinating that you say that because I'm now going off my script down. But <laughs> as you read this book, what one feels is in the best way that I could use this word, it's so artful. It's so well put together, beautifully composed. So I'm actually really fascinated, and I hadn't, I was going to ask you this later, but as to exactly you. You say you began not thinking that it would ever be a book, that mm. it would ever be read by anybody else. Mm. Otherwise, I wouldn't have. You I couldn't, couldn't have done, have done it. it. No. You couldn't have done it. No. So, has there been a Herculean labour of assembling a lot of fragments and making a sort of shape and an arc out of it? No, 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 not at all. I. It's more or less as I wrote it. There are a couple of bits that I, um, because it's made up of a lot of smallish sections, each with its own voice and register and preoccupation, you know. Um, I, when I, when I knew it was going to be a book, I did shuffle a couple of those so it was just mm. one flowed from the next better. But it was not a, a big structural job in any sense. That's it was an extraordinary thing. I think it's, um, I think it's that 
you know this test when you have been writing fiction for a long time the idea of narrative is just so baked in isn't it it's so mm-hmm. it's in it your blood because one has it always to command it takes mm. a lot of work but i do know what you mean that that the some rolling sequence of words and tones and moods and directions that's one of the things one learns not not learn so that you can do it easily but learn so that you know when it isn't right or when it is right yes yeah and uh, you start to kind of notice resonances and and mm. things that relate to one another mm. and as you do when you're writing a novel you know you you write something and then 50 pages later you discover why you wrote it because yeah. the root of it has appeared mm. and it's it was a bit like that with this that while i wasn't writing a book i i began to see obviously that what i was writing was kind of amassing and becoming something more than just a couple of notes in a diary and naturally a kind of um a, a structure or a, a sort of a music i think it's more music than yeah. a structure began yeah. to because it arise. doesn't feel as if it's got a, a a rigid structure it feels as if one approach to your central issue of insomnia flows from another and then a story intervenes and then a scene intervenes and then a, a, some abstraction some reflection some speculation intervenes yeah. in in a sequence that but i am fascinated to find out that that was so spontaneous that's pretty amazing actually because it feels it feels right and it's funny because in another way it doesn't really have a structure at all in that it's there's no almost counter to what i just said about there being a music there's no kind of um continuity of tone or voice in it mm. well maybe there is some but there is there is there but is. it's you like you said <laughs> yeah. right at the beginning connecting all your novels there is a continuity unmistakable it's you but you're you're right there's there are abrupt breaks between the types of thinking mm. and telling that go on in here yeah and, and a a short story that's kind of yeah. nothing to do with insomnia that is just randomly kind of shoved in i mean it wasn't shoved in because it was just what i wrote at the time and i thought when i found it was going to be published i thought oh well that you know my editor will want that out but they didn't they didn't <laughs> we'll come back to that yeah. piece of story which is sort of embedded at certain points during the text later do you want to actually read us a bit sam get get yeah. give the audience who haven't read it yet a feel of your book one <clears throat> one bit of your book and we'll have another reading later yeah So there are a couple of um sections in the book which are um chronicle my unhappy um trips to the doctor and um because I should say that I haven't always had insomnia I only got it a couple of years ago and I got it from I went from being a very good sleeper to just suddenly being a very very bad sleeper or a non-sleeper more to the point so I was really kind of ranging around trying to find out what had happened so I went to the doctor and kept asking for tests and things <clears throat> and in this bit i go there asking if i could have a test to see if it's anything to do with hormones and menopause and so on if i knew the cause was menopausal i could at least stop looking for other causes i say what i mean is i could stop investing my money and time in trying to excavate my being for some emotional artifact that would serve as a clue as to the nature of myself and in that excavation painful and invasive as it is come to a bedrock the bedrock on which all my fears and neuroses lie and somehow in ways i didn't yet understand but would hopefully come to understand smash through that bedrock thereby letting the whole tower of my egoic and troubled self fall through taking with it my weaknesses shortcomings terrors and unhelpful tendencies among them my insomnia i don't say any of this to her only feel there's something in my character that wants in this moment to collapse something that is asked to exercise the power of an adult and can't there's only this strange reversion to the powerless panic of childhood Maybe that's one of the artifacts I'm supposed to scrape out from the earth. Maybe that's one of the reasons I don't sleep. Have you thought about counseling? The doctor asks. I tell her I've been seeing a counselor. 
And do you think that's a good thing to do? Good in what way, I want to ask? Good as in wholesome, or as in useful, or as in morally right? The only morally right thing a person can do when they're meanwhile burdening the NHS with their ailments, ailments which originate in the mind. Whichever, I know that the right answer is yes. She wants me to say yes, so that I inadvertently admit that my sleeping problems are psychological, not as such biological, and therefore my own responsibility and not hers. Yes, I say. Good, so you'll carry on with it. Why is it, she's thinking, that she has to sit there day after day listening to patients who refuse to take responsibility for their own well-being? Why does everyone want a test, a diagnosis, a pill? They want her to wave the magic wand. And it isn't only that she has no wand, but that there's no magic in medicine and never was. The days of miraculous cures are gone, she's thinking, or at least her days in believing in them are gone. And now what is she but an agony aunt and a drug dealer? (coughs) Half of her time is spent not on diagnosing and treating primary illnesses, but on treating all the illnesses caused by side effects of the drugs she's prescribed. She's become a doctor of side effects treated with more drugs that create more side effects. Some of it can't be helped. The human body is perishable, medicine imperfect. But then there are all these people who should never have let themselves get to the point of needing medicine, whose problems are preventable, and who now want her to take an action that will compensate for the actions they didn't take themselves. People in Syria can sleep with bombs falling. Why can't you sleep on your king-size mattress, with your winter-togged duvet and your kelp-scented hair on a fake-down pillow under a bomb-free sky? What pee disrupts your sleep, princess? A passing Audi? What paucity and fragility of spirit has left you relying on drugs to do that which is the natural inheritance of all animals everywhere and forever? But prescribed drugs she must, because that's what they want. People are rattling with drugs. You can hear it when they walk in. Maybe they don't even want to get better. They've got used to the sad prestige of being unwell. They want her to both acknowledge how magnificently, uniquely unwell they are and to reassure them that despite this, they won't have undue pain and they won't die. I've told her, yes, I'll carry on with the counselling and we'll meditate every day and try more relaxation techniques at bedtime. And while I'm speaking, she's gazing at the computer screen, then turns back to me and cocks her head. No catastrophizing, she says softly. No catastrophizing, I say. I'm not sure now if I feel like a child or a person standing in front of a magistrate in a district court, someone promising to change her ways and be a good citizen and stop being a burden on society. The child is meek and innocent, the person in court meek and guilty. I can't decide which I am. Wonderful. In those last sentences, you catch the ambiguity that the whole passage has in it. In in a less sophisticated book, more of a sort of what you might expect from a book about insomnia, oh dear, here's a big problem, nobody understands it properly, the doctor would be the baddie. What's really lovely in that scene, I know whose thoughts all those thoughts are about, oh, so you can't sleep on your king-size bed with your tog mattress and your they're yours as mm. much as they're hers oh, yeah, yeah. you're filling them into the doctor's silences mm. out of your own rage against yourself as well as them being hers it's, yeah. it's a beautifully slippery complicated human scene with yeah. all your novelistic powers brought to bear upon it so this is not a very it's not a very it's not a self-help book it's not even there, there is a sort of genre, isn't there, of books about medical or psychological catastrophes that afflict people. And no question from reading The Shapeless Unease that it's a catastrophe. You convey that terrifyingly. But there, there's a model for those books, and it, it has a sort of catastrophic beginning and then a discovery of <laughs> a cure and a solution and then a wonderful, uplifting ending. But your book... That isn't what it is. What, what, first of all, 
how hard was it to resist that pattern? And secondly, what kind of a book is it? Can you, do you have <laughs> a tradition for your book? What is it? What is it? Um, well, it wasn't hard to resist that format because I don't have a cure mm. for it, and it does. I haven't got far enough through the journey with it to mm. see its to to see its own narrative and to know how it could end um, or what could make it end, if anything. So, and and also because you know this was written, all of it was written in right in the middle of it, yeah. you know, while sleep deprived. Yeah in the night and in the day, um, without any, I mean, it's, it's a very obsessive book and it's very self-centered, I suppose. I mean, you know, in the sense that you, when you're very sleep deprived or in any deprived state or in any kind of extreme need, you, you just kind of sucking things in. There's nothing to give out. So the book is, is sort of written, there, so I'm not really thinking about a reader or, or how it could help somebody. And well, except I, I feel I almost have to interrupt you there because that could that could sound like a solipsistic book. Because of who you are and how you're made, all the time, every, first of all, those questions you've just raised there about how selfish and how self-centred is a book like this, they're occurring to you. Yes. As you write. <laughs> yeah. And you are, just as you put it into the doctor's thoughts in that little scene, you are protesting against yourself. But I think you have a very natural gesture outwards. So all the time you're actually telling stories about your family and then you're, you're sharing ideas out of books, out of your reading, out of mm. philosophy, out of literature, which take you out. And one feels they are your lifelines as the suffering insomniac, but they're also the lifelines of the book that stop it being. Yeah. I mean, stop it being a miserable read, because one of the extraordinary things about it is that it's a very joyous, sensuous, exciting read. And how can that be? How can that be? So, oh, sorry, I just wanted to say all that, because it's yeah. a bit of a Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a good... Well, thank you, Tess, firstly. And it's a good point in, in that... Um, I think, again, from being a novelist for, for years, there's a, a kind of knowledge that you acquire, which, which maybe everyone has anyway, that, that if, you, if you just write about what is absolutely true to you, and I've always done that, even though I've written novels that have not been about me, but they've been about subjects that sort of sit here in mm. me and, and feel true to me, and I try to write from the heart always, um, I think if you do that, then you have to trust that that is going to connect with somebody else. And there may be uh, in every 10 people, nine people who it doesn't connect to because it's come from here and not everyone is going to have mm -hmm. that same thing happening for them there. But it, one person will connect with it. And, and I, I've, I've kind of written by that rule, I think that, you know, if it, if it's written from here, then you may not have a large readership, but, you will have a readership that gets you and that feels that you've spoken to them. And then in return, them reading your work and their response to it, their reaction to it, yeah. speaks back to you. And there's this incredibly nourishing cycle that happens yeah. there. And yeah. I think that this book was written very much in that spirit. So although, yeah, it's selfish, self-obsessed and self-absorbed, and it has to be because how could it not? It's about my own suffering and raging sometimes and raging anger yeah um, ranting oh. <laughs> um it's also all absolutely true to me there's nothing there that, that wasn't entirely heartfelt mm. and so that's going to find other people because that's the nature of it. that's the expansive yeah. nature of writing from yeah. that place yeah. and i also think there's something in you which is not self-centered despite the necessary self-centering we all have. So that there is a sort of, the, the book reaches out even when it doesn't quite know it's doing it. Which is I, I wonder if in a way, I don't know if this is true, I don't write a diary anymore, so I don't know. But maybe novelists always writing with a reader in mind, even if it's a diary, maybe, yeah. maybe you can't oh, ever yes. get past that. You know, maybe yeah. there is always that, that sort of maybe generosity yeah. of spirit or maybe just self-consciousness I don't know what it is that is aware of 
I think everybody who writes a diary has a reader reminder. It's a sort of, it's the final justicer who will read this and see that your mum really was mean. Yeah, that's and right. That's and what you were right all along. Yes, yes, you were right all along. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad, Sam, that you're talking so positively about fiction because perhaps defensively as we both have mostly been in the business of making things up. I, I, I'm worried by some of your disenchantment at the beginning <laughs> of the book that she writes these horribly persuasive passages like, um, a word is just a collection of letters attached to an idea. The idea doesn't have to be attached to anything in the world. You can be rich in words and poor in experience. You can spend, spend, spend and somehow make that your living. There's this huge disenchantment with the business of making things up, which I feel is somewhere at the root and source, actually, not only of your book, but of your, dare I say, of your sleep, I think. We'll talk later. We'll talk later. Um, she calls it, she, one, of her, one of Sam's other novels begins with, my sleep was ragged that night. She says, my sleep was ragged that night, wrote our little fraudster. <laughs> Much is said to disparage authors who write outside of their expertise and worse still who appropriate the experience of others about whom they cannot know. A white woman appropriating the experience of a Bangladeshi woman, a childless woman, that of a mother. Nobody took the pen from my hand when I, well slept, found a notion in my brain of sleeplessness. To write fiction, you have to engage in organised fraud, the laundering of experience into the offshore haven of words, which I have to say is one of the most eloquent, (laughs) anti-making-it-up sort of speeches that I've read for a while. Quite troubling. Tell me about that. And and then maybe that's a good way of you coming at telling us a little bit about the piece of fiction which is dispersed around the shapeless unease. Mm. Because here and there, not entirely explained, but we feel it's something you're working at in those long nights. There is a piece of story quite unconnected to you, to a woman, to sleeplessness. To mm. tell us a little bit about both your disenchantment with make-believe <clears throat> and then this piece of make-believe that nonetheless threads through the book. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was disenchanted with fiction, it's fair to say. Um, and not really with the idea... No, I don't know. I was struggling to, to find something to write about to find a novel and I and I can't blame that all on insomnia I mean I do blame a lot of things on insomnia but I can't blame all of that on it um I I was really struggling to feel that anything that I had anything to say that I I felt that I'd kind of said it you know I I couldn't find a new way of saying new things and I I think I I, th- I think I worked myself through that in the writing of this book. I mean, for me, there was something miraculous that happened in writing it because I started writing this short story. I don't know. Well, I know where I know where it came from because there's a section in in earlier on in this book that's about the Piraha tribe, uh, who are a Brazilian Amazon tribe, who have been quite well documented. Um, and I became kind of temporarily and ferociously interested in them. And I ended up writing sort of a kind of essay that, that then just loops back to myself and my own insomnia, obviously. Um, but a sort of essay about them and about the fact that they don't use recursion in language. So mm. they don't use sentences in which you embed a clause in another clause, yeah. which is a, a very human, uh, we think it's, you know, what sort of characterizes one of the things that characterizes human Until language? They found the piraha who seem to, and then the piraha don't don't do that. Um, so I, I gave an example recursive sentence in the book, which was about um, um, you know a middle aged man who robs a cash machine and loses his wedding ring um, while he's so your it. story really began with that. Sample sentence that yes. you wrote, as it as it purports to do in here. She, you know, the narrator tells yeah. us she wrote that sentence which did not have recursive grammar in it. And your story really began from that. It really just did. as it does in here. This yeah. book is is it's so it feels so artful, but it 
really was so it really, spontaneous. It That's really happened that way. So I, and I'm not a short story writer. And, and um, I did once ask Tess if I could sit in on her short story course on the MA, and she said no. I, I surely didn't. I have yeah. no memory of that sound. <laughs> I, I don't blame you. No. I'd have said no. I didn't say no. I can't Anyway. Um, <laughs> I would have said no, Tess. But I never did. Okay. Maybe I imagined you said no. I think you did. Gosh, what a wasted yes. opportunity that was. <laughs> anyway, I'm not a short story writer, and Tess is a very brilliant short story writer, and I feel like I have an awful lot that I need to learn about the form of the short story. And... Um, and, and so I just, I try writing them, but they, they don't really work. And then so I, I heard a brilliant story of yours on the radio once, so just interrupting. Yeah. Um, we must stop doing <laughs> that womanish thing of paying yeah. each other compliments, no, but still, um, it's true. And so I had this, this example sentence that I was using as a recursive sentence for this essay on the Piraha. And then a couple of weeks later, I, I thought, I'm going to write that story. Um, and, and I did, and I wrote it pretty much in, in one go, in, in, a, in a couple of days, I think it took me. Um, it just spilled out, as all of this book just spilled out. And I found that as I was writing it, um, all these elements from my own life and from my childhood, and more specifically, things that were quite linked to trauma and the things that I think might in some way account for my insomnia were beginning to surface in the mm. short story and I found that really interesting mm. that um, it's like the candelabra that is exactly. in your own story of your mother's precious yes. object and then yes. it becomes an element in the short story it's right. the man's mother's object exactly um, and I found that through that story I was actually processing some of my own mm some of my own story and some of my own trauma. And I thought, oh, that's interesting yeah. because I hadn't known that's what was going on and there had been no design to do that. Yeah. So it was, um, so I could see that the, the fictional element in the book was working autobiographically just as the memoir bit was working, mm. but in a different way, in a more diffuse way, in a way that that is kind of in ciphers, you know, the ciphers of, of other characters and of other events that are not your own. And mm. it's, a, it's a kind of code for yourself, mm. isn't it? You find yourself mm. in your fiction in coded form. And I thought, huh, <laughs> maybe fiction is worth so that Because I did feel that arc in here of that very powerful and, and challenging denu- you know, denunciation of the mm. fictional that you begin with. And I felt you reconcile with this. And yeah. I, I can't remember, the, there's a passage where, I think apropos of the short story, where you talk about, as you just have, about fiction expressing your subconscious. And then you say, not if expressing it, being it. It's yeah. the place where you think about the things you don't know you're thinking about. Yes, exactly. And of course, there's a, there's a danger that that could sound like, Oh, so fiction's just a place where you work out your trauma. But I know that that's the last thing you mean because no, no I'll explain. I think um, <clears throat> I mean one one of the reasons that writing this book was so sustaining for me when I was in the really in the depths of extreme insomnia was because when you are very sleep deprived, obviously you don't dream very much, and mm. there's so much that is worked out in dreaming in the subconscious world of dreams. And and writing is a lot like that. So writing became my way of dreaming while not sleeping. So it became that sort of act of the subconscious. And that short story in it was sort of like a dream within a dream. I mean, I guess that sounds horribly abstract, but that became almost, you know, if this was my sort of waking life that short story became the dream that was happening yeah. inside that waking life and it's not it's the opposite to horribly abstract it's in your most awake self in the book that you are thinking doubting questioning that you are most philosophical hmm. and it's in your your dreaming part of you in the book that you are most particularized and suddenly there are people and you're in a place and you're yeah. doing a thing yeah 
like fiction. Yes. So actually, it's in the fictional story, make-believe stuff happening bits that yeah. that deep work goes on, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's very true. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but yeah, fiction is very particular, isn't mm. it? It's, mm. do you say it? it's in, it's placed? It's got a it's got a time. It's got a place. It's it's got a, a context. It has people. They talk to each other. Mm. It has yeah. scenarios. It has yeah. scenes that yeah. begin and end. And and your this book is punctuated by marvelous writing of scenes where. Sam with the other who who is you you leave him wonderfully sketched in and hmm. but but he but he's very important at certain crises actually in mm. the book in a lovely way that feels like a very very big tribute um, but where you go to fr- France and and see the starry sky mm. and where you go to Wales and and actually it's actually funny apart from anything else because this might sound like rather a, a dark book and it. It's a dark book, but it's also a very funny book when you're packing up to go to Wales and you take everything that you could possibly need except for the matches and mm. you take the wetsuits that you then... It's really too cold to swim and so on and so forth. It's lovely. Mm-hmm. So, so it's those scenes of lived life yeah. which are... You know, they happen to be about you, but they're mm. actually fiction effectively on the page. Yeah. Are, the, are the rich, redeeming scenes that, that recover... The narrative from yeah. from that painful, relentless questioning that it also so brilliantly does and must do. Yes, that's that's a very good point. Yeah, that there are these little kind of scenes and stories within it all the way through, yeah. and I suppose that's just our our instinct, isn't it? That storytelling instinct yeah. to kind of frame something to see where it begins and ends. And I think um, you know the this sort of shapelessness that the title refers to where, you know, your days and nights are just kind of all the same and it's somewhat remedied by being able to write about it and being able to pack things into scenes and into little shapely nuggets Mm. of things Mm. that may not go anywhere, but there they are. There's a little section there. Mm. The day has not been wasted. (laughs) Um, There's something there. And it organises life when everything else is becoming, you know, very diffuse and murky and, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a brilliant account of it. You know, there's this Philip Larkin poem that's <coughs> one of the important totems in the book which saves the narrator mm. in places from the darkest moments. And mm. I don't know the whole poem, actually, but this is how it goes. Uh, we had it before, but then it was going to end... This is him thinking about death and then sleep. We had it before, but then it was going to end and was all the time merging with a unique endeavour to bring to bloom the million-petaled flower of being here. Just before I get you to read another bit of of the book, talk a little bit about why that, to bring to bloom the million-petaled flower of being here. Why was that so saving to you? I mean, I don't know. Sometimes um, poetry does that, doesn't it? Sometimes you just mm. find a line in a poem, and it seems to save your life in that moment, or it, you know, or it just speaks to something so deep in you. And um, mm. I, I found. I mean, the poem is the old fools, and it's and it's a dark poem. It's about death. It's not a, it's not a happy poem. You'll be amazed to discover being a <laughs> Philip Larkin poet. Um, <laughs> It's, passing inadvertent happy moment. <laughs> yes, and it, and it isn't really... I mean, he's talking about oblivion, and he's saying, well, we were oblivious before yeah. life, um, but but it was okay then, because it was about to bud into life. Um, it's not okay afterwards, because was, then what? Yes. So, um, but, but I... You know, in the in the darkness of that poem, and and at three in the morning or whatever it was, that line, the, mm. the million-petaled flower of being here, was just like this sharp light mm. and I and I just I mean you're quite deranged at night you know you're, you're quite mad and I'm quite mad and you I write brilliantly about that and I read that that line and I thought that's it that's that's yeah. exactly what I needed to know that's the answer to something yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's the answer to something that doesn't have a question so it's this kind of beautifully open-ended thing that that sort of solves everything um and it kind of brought this deep p- 
peace that I you know I didn't normally have at three in the morning. There's really kind of I felt so consoled by it, and that again that comes back to that thing of you know speaking to one another through words and really speaking to something about experience. And I could read that line at another time, and it would it would yeah. mean nothing. But at that in that moment, it just um, and that's a real reader's anxiety, isn't it? That when reading has been fundamental in your life, you fear that it might wear out in the darkest places. Yeah. So yes. actually, that's a wonderful affirmation. Yeah. That in the darkest place, it was a line of poetry that, that did that thing for you. Which And it's always poetry, I find. For me, it's always poetry that I, that I come back to. I know, she's and... getting at the novel again. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, this is just such wonderful writing. I'm just joking, Sam, because you're, you're right. <laughs> Poetry can turn phrases that rotate the world, too small a rotation to cause a public commotion, but enough to knock a solitary life a fraction off its axis, such that it will never be quite the same again. Hmm. Marvellous. <laughs> Do you want to, yeah. just before we turn to the audience and ask for questions, read us from yeah. something from near the end of the book, which is, although I said there isn't an arc and there isn't a cure... There is a wonderful rising tide, I think, in the book, which brings us to a place that feels different from where you start. Hmm. Yeah, so this is from very close to the end. It's just a few pages from the end. Um, 7.30am. Here is the pile of yesterday's clothes on the floor. I pick them up. Or, if bedtime superstition corralled me into folding them roughly and stuffing them in the cupboard, then I take them out again and put them on the bed. I get into them in the precise reverse order I vacated them the night before. Bra, top, jeans, jumper. Always something unbearable about this process. The process of getting dressed in the morning after a night of no sleep getting into the very clothes you took off the night before when you embarked on the ritual of bedtime, as if such things as sleep applied to you anymore. The pile of clothes is an open rebuke. I want to say they mock a lost innocence, even though I know this makes no sense, but more and more I make this unconscious association between innocence and sleep. I suppose it isn't a new association. It's one I made myself when I wrote that opening line in my, lo in my novel, I Sleep the Sleep of Angels. It's one we make from childhood, the sleeping infant untroubled by conscience or the weight of the world, or in fairy tales that have people slumbering for a hundred years or rendered inert through the petty evil of others' potions and spells. It's there in Shakespeare when he writes in Rome, Romeo and Juliet, where care lodges, sleep will never lie. And in that line in Macbeth, innocent sleep, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care, balm of hurt minds, he calls it, chief nourisher in life's feast. And there it is in death, the ultimate surrender and eternal rest, the dreamless sleep, the reconciliation, the forgiving annihilation, the letting go no matter what, no matter what your life was, there comes this final benediction. Sleep, sleep, like money, you only think about it when you have too little. Then you think about it all the time. And the less you have, the more you think about it. It becomes the prism through which you see the world and nothing can exist except in relation to it. In yesterday's clothes, I go outside and traipse up Salisbury Hill with overworked heart. This morning is grey, but not dull. January light is unlike December's. Already it has the beginnings of that clarity and expanse that culminates in spring. The snowdrops are little acts of resistance. The dogwoods are wine red. The slow bushes turn the hedgerows pale blue. Beautiful, surprising blue. A colour reserved more for water and sky. You don't see that blue much otherwise in nature. The hazel has a mass of ochre catkins hanging in busy vertical marks like they've been made by a typewriter. The branches of that tree there, whatever it is, are frilled with lichen that has its own inner sunlit luminosity. A dog tries to eat my scarf. The sun has just come up from behind the opposite hill and nudged open the grey and now the hilltop is momentarily orange, then gone again. I find myself crying. 
what is it we're supposed to make of life? There's so much suffering. My own is a tiny stitch in a vast tapestry and many, many people suffer so much more than I have. What is it that keeps rising up in us even when we feel crushed? What keeps putting one foot in front of the other or looks at the vague blue smudge of a slow bush and is reminded of a truth that doesn't even have a name? What is that? It isn't me. It isn't me that gets me up this hill each morning, but rather an irrepressibility that must be called life, life itself, a force working independently of my brain, body and mind. I don't know what it is. I hoist myself up to sit on the trig point and look out over the city. I know and have walked every inch of that city. <coughs> what is it that is leaning forward in me now towards the world? There's a prayer flag tied to the branches of a tree just below me, like the prayer flag I have at home. What is it that dares to want to get back down this hill and go home and write? Or that wants to find out why things in nature are rarely blue? What is it that triggers the synapses that call to the muscles to work the body and keep going on? What is it that still insists on being happy? What is it that refuses the call of defeat? Mm. Lovely thing to end with. <laughs> Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Shall we invite some questions from, from the floor? <clears throat> okay. Um, what though? Um, I guess I was curious when I read it. How did you function? I mean, you, you know, the writing's so beautiful. You say you weren't writing a diary, yet you must have been writing all the time, because otherwise you couldn't write without clarity about some of the scenes. I mean, unless you've made it up, but I don't think you were. Mm -hmm. um, and, but also just simply, how did you function? You, you know, you describe such, you know, the talk tonight doesn't touch on the bleakness of the book as well. I mean, despite everything you've talked about, it is really bleak, which I liked. <coughs> But, but, you know, how were you, you were still teaching, you were still, you know, going about everything. And, and were you writing at 3am? Or was it, you also talk about writing as being your solace when you couldn't sleep, but mm. yeah, thanks. Yeah, I did. I mostly wrote in the day, but uh, I sometimes wrote at night, but at, at night, I was so livid with the world. <laughs> and, um, or just so I, I don't know, just dejected that I didn't really write then. I wrote mostly in sleep-deprived states during the day. Um, but as to how how I functioned, um, I didn't really. I mean, I did I did teach, but I I teach on a very minimal contract. So, and I, and I often went in to teach without having had a, a minute of sleep. You know, it, I I did that regularly. Um, and are you you don't. I didn't really function very well. I think I um, put everything on hold. I stopped doing things. I stopped making plans. Or if I made a plan, I always came with the, you know, with the small print that I may have to pull out. You know, I would. I stopped making plans until the day because I'd know if I'd had enough sleep to to do whatever it was. In the night, I would, as the hours went on and I was still awake, I would start kind of looking at what I had to do the next day and deciding which things could go and which things could, I had to do. I um, don't know why, but I found those bits some of the worst bits because I'm a totally sleeping person who sleeps too much. But from the nights I have had insomnia, it's that grey five o'clock, what can I cancel thing. Yeah. I don't know why, but the way yeah. you described that was almost the most painful thing mm. worse worse than the dark philosophizing yeah dark as that is yeah yes true. because it's the stuff of real life it's the stuff of it? real life it's yeah. all very well this is all very metaphysical and amazing mm. and terrible you've got to get up and go and teach students and you mm. you haven't read their work and it's horrible and your eyes hurt and your brain hurts mm. so yeah awful yes you're right that we haven't quite conveyed <laughs> quite how 
bleak the book is, and yet funny, and yet also beautiful. Hmm. But yeah, I think that's you know you, you don't you don't really function. I mean, I I, hmm. I can now function on, on on much less sleep than I used to be able to. So that's the happy ending. <laughs> I don't need sleep as much as I do. <laughs> uh, just wondering where you stand on fiction now. Huh. Um, <laughs> I am a believer again. I do believe, um, but I don't do a lot of it. That said, you know, I try. Um, it's not coming as easily to me as it as it always has, and I I don't know why. I mean, I think a lot of people hit this in their writing life. Have you have you Tess? No, but I got rid of my demons before I started by writing such a lot of books and failing and throwing them away. Mm. That's at least, this is what I'm telling myself. <laughs> so, it, I haven't. Um, yeah, I do. I have much more faith in writing generally now than I did before. I mean, I always had faith in writing and it was always my, my love. But... Um, <laughs> Now it feels like it's a necessity. It's not just something mm. that I love to do. It's something I really need to do. And it doesn't matter if the world needs me to do it or not. I do mm. need to do it. Um, but I don't know what form my next thing will take because I think it will take, it will be a novel because that's what I, that's what I do and that's what I love. But it's not coming with the same kind of obviousness that it's always come before. I've always been very kind of, um, resolute, and I've had an idea, and I've stuck with the idea, and I haven't got distracted, and I and I've been absorbed in it and interested by it until the end. Um, but this time that hasn't happened, so I don't know. I'm just trying to see it as a, you know, the whole, it, it, you know, maybe it's just a, a period of reconciliation mm. of lots of things, mm. and um, and also of reckoning, you know. I, I feel there does probably in everybody, every fiction writer's life, there probably are periods of reckoning. And really and truly, I wasn't joking when I said I sometimes, <coughs> I hope that I've sort of, I did mine before I was published, but mm. it was pretty awful and agonising. <laughs> so, so yeah. yes, that's what I would imagine is going on. Hmm. And it's eight o'clock. So let's thank Sam very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.